Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 11 years of law enforcement analysis experience. She spent time in Denton PD in Texas and the Kansas City Bureau of Investigation, also known as KBI. She holds a master's degree in digital forensic science. She's here to talk about, among other things, analyzing violent crime. Please welcome Pamela Miller. Pamela, how are we doing? I'm doing well. And yourself? I am hanging in there. It's been a busy, busy morning. I, I don't know what is in the air, but I feel like I've been on the phone now for about five hours straight. But we're here. I'm excited to talk to you. There's so much to go over. Just a little housekeeping for our listeners. We are going to have a call-in segment later. Favorite first job. So get your calls in now. Pam? Just like I ask everybody, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Yeah, so I started right out of kind of college and at the Kansas Bureau of Investigation and the incident-based reporting section, and then promoted to a case manager. And when I was a case manager, basically I would take all of the narratives and the incident reports and I'd package them up to send a prosecution. And reading some of the cases, I was reviewing what the intelligence analysts were doing for this case support. And I went and spoke to a couple of them. And it was a position where once you got in that role, like you retired there. It was all the people that had been there had been an analyst for years and years. And then I spoke to them about what makes a good analyst, you know, what they were looking for. And then when a position opened in 2012, I applied and I got that opportunity to be an intel analyst. You started out as in an admin role, right? Yeah. So incident-based reporting in Kansas, if a law enforcement agency does not have the means to enter their reports in to submit to the FBI, they would submit all of their offense and arrest reports to the incident-based reporting section, and we would key those into the program and then submit those. So I started off fat-fingering in data <laughs> for years. I did it for like two years. And that I really understood the statutes by the time I got <laughs> up to be an intel analyst. So that that was helpful. But yeah. Yeah. And that's what I usually ask of folks is like these jobs that led you to becoming an analyst. Uh, how did they influence when you got there? Because I think a lot of folks that want to get in the profession have a tough time getting in. It, it can certain positions can be highly competitive, but anything that you can do at the government level, especially when it's close to the, the police department, whether it's an admin staff, whether it's just doing records or, or anything, I, I, that helps you learn different aspects of the jobs that can pay dividends later. Absolutely. I always tell people, get your foot in the door. And even the Saki analyst that we have here working with us now, she didn't start off in an analyst role. She started off, I think it was actually records as well, in their department. And as supervisory staff got to know the work, and they promoted up when that opportunity was there. So yeah, don't yeah. be defeated if you don't get that role. Just find a way to get in. And did you say SOC? What does SOC stand for? 
the Saki, the sexual assault kit initiative. And I know on the federal side, like, man, that is really true. Like once you get into the federal system, there is a lot of opportunity to transfer across the country once you're in the federal system. And I don't know if you felt that same way being in a state system that, okay, once you got in to a state position there in Kansas, there was plenty of opportunity to transfer if you wanted to. Yeah. So we didn't have opportunity. We didn't have those different field offices like the feds do, Mm -hmm. but we had three different field offices. We had one in Wichita, Great Bend, and, and then in Topeka. And you could be put out to one of those. That's where our analysts were at, were located at. And I think that there were quite a few of us at the KBI that actually did come from a position where we promoted up to that role. When you think back now, when you first started in 2012, what story comes to mind? What were some of the things that maybe you laugh at now as you're looking back and you were just brand new to the field? Oh, yeah, I was pretty green coming out. And I I remembered I was supposed to be the first strategic analyst that the Bureau had hired. And I was like, I don't like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I I didn't even know what that word meant. I was like, I guess I'm going to have to research. I was really good at research. And I remember when I interviewed, I was so nervous that I was just like, I guess my role would be to even if I was talking about squirrels, I need to I need to make sure that everybody understands the migration pattern or like anything that they could about squirrels in that particular moment and I, I remember them looking at each other like where did this go <laughs> so yeah I, I I guess the other thing is so many of the analysts that were there had been there for years so I could absorb a lot of their knowledge they were very skilled in different things and that allowed me kind of room to grow too so then was it strategic products that you were looking for was it threat assessments that you were tasked to do Yes. So they wanted me to work on threat assessments. And initially with that kind of, I, I realized like very shortly that we didn't have like a gang database in Kansas. So I realized that a lot of the gangs were like the, the street level gangs at that time were maybe within each city, but the outlaw motorcycle gangs, like nobody was tracking them statewide. And because they crossed so many jurisdictions, like that was something that I really dug into. And so I I would go out and I would talk to the OMG experts in Kansas City and then the Midwest Cycle Investigators Association. I, I was like the lone member from Kansas that would go to these meetings in Jefferson City, Missouri. And I did that for, you know, by basically the six to seven years that I was an analyst at the Bureau. And then I would do threat assessments on that. And then when Colorado legalized marijuana. They wanted me to do a threat analysis on on the impact of legalization of marijuana on Kansas. And that was pretty difficult because at the time, if if you got arrested for DWI, they didn't like there wasn't like a DWI and then a a separate statute for if you were driving under the influence of marijuana. And so Mm -hmm. like I remember contacting Nebraska because I was like, are you doing this as well? And he's like, yes. And I was like, are you having trouble finding? He's like, yes, I'm having trouble <laughs> finding data. And then I guess after I did that for a few years, my supervisor at that time had left. And then when we got a new supervisor, they they changed the kind of focus of the unit a little bit more. And so they've repurposed my position back to like an investigative support. What was your final conclusion with uh, marijuana? 
yeah, okay, so I didn't have, I couldn't get the quantitative data, right? <laughs> and so they're like, we'll get the qualitative data. So then they just went out and interviewed people. And I was like, uh. who supported the, the, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah. So that that's you know sometimes you you can only and that's I learned very early on. I was like I I'll, I can show you the facts. These are what we have. These are the hard numbers, or this is what I'm able to get with that request. But I'm can't make you can't make a story to fit a narrative with the data. Like it's it's you shouldn't do that. It's it'll skew it. So that's what I did. I I remember writing some of those threat assessment and and I found it really difficult just because it just sounded like. Your conclusions were never very solid. It's like, you know, this, here's the data and, you know, heroin's going to continue to be a problem in this area. <laughs> it was like, it wasn't, it was very like basic and you didn't really step out or stick your neck out at all in your conclusions. It was just basically very, like, like anybody can conclude that by looking at the data. Yes, I yes, and that's completely how it was. And I also I don't even know how many drafts I had, but every time I had to make a draft, I'd send it up the chain, and then it would come back down. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that this was like what we fixed on, on like draft version four. Like, and now we're on draft version 37, and you're having me revert back to the. It was that was just painful times. <laughs> yeah. So so then, as you mentioned, you go back, well, you you head to investigations. And so that's that's a real big shift, right? Going from this research aspect of writing threat assessments to now doing case support. Yeah, it was a and it was almost like overnight. So I really had to catch up with the program. And I think the first case that was assigned to me as a solo analyst was, you know, we we only worked certain cases if we were at the bureau and it, it was, you know, a homicide case. And I'm like, hey, I guess here we go. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, let's get into a case then, because this brings us to your analyst badge story. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works. And so you are dealing with a homicide that starts in Kansas, but quickly goes transcontinental. Yes. I, I don't think I will ever work a case like this ever again. And <laughs> it's, it was kind of started off in the Buck Center of Kansas, north of Salina, Kansas. There was a murder. I think Matthew Shoshki was murdered inside of his house, and it was really a, like a whodunit. We we didn't have anything to go off of. It was very remote, isolated, where this gentleman lived, and it, it was kind of a wild ride for sure. The victim was shot inside of his home. He had just gotten home from visiting his parents and was still in his FedEx employee uniform and he died, he was shot in the bathroom and his truck, his dog and some of his clothing items were missing. And we tracked that truck from license plate reader pings all the way from Kansas to California where the truck was discovered outside in Los Angeles. And once we got the truck, we started processing it and it ended up that the suspect that we were after he tied the dog up to a pole after like the dog, he just got sick of traveling with him, I don't know. So he tied this dog up to a pole. Somebody else found the dog and took it to the Humane Society. And when they were processing the dog for intake, they saw the name Shoshki on the back of it, on his collar. So they Googled it, 
because he had the address and found this recent homicide and they contacted the family and the family over the phone was able to give like German commands to the Australian Shepherd because that's how Matthew had trained this dog and that's how they confirmed it and then that those people drove that dog all the way back to be with the family and I remember like when we heard about this in the office like one of the analysts was like really emotional about it and I'm like Taylor like it's a it's a dog like we're dealing with lives like human lives here she's like that is the most precious story I've ever heard I was like oh sweet mercy (laughs) so what city was the dog tied to the pole Los Angeles okay so the, the suspect had traveled quite a long time with this dog yes and they had him on video of where he tied this dog up and then the suspect wasn't done yet he gets he boards an Amtrak train and while they're traveling on that train he gets in a fight with a passenger on the train and ends up stabbing a passenger and then he jumps off of the train he gets hit by another Amtrak train going the opposite direction and it almost completely lacerated his foot so he's in the hospital and the county sheriffs like over there are like we don't want to like who's going to take up this hospital bill because you know we've got a stabbing here and we show up and we're like we want him to like he's our suspect in our homicide case out of kansas and they're like have at so when agent bundy goes into the hospital room this kid's like you know hi how are you and and steve's like well i'm you know, I'm Steve Bundy. I'm a special agent with the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. He's like, well, what do you have to do with this, like, kind of stabbing? And he's like, I'm not here for a stabbing. I'm here for the homicide that happened. And he's like, I want a lawyer. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was the wildest story. So but, the uh, person, did the person die that was stabbed on the train? No, and he ended up, I believe he was visiting stateside. He was from Australia. He's He's a resident. He's an Australian guy that was over here on vacation, and he didn't want to prosecute because he didn't want to have to fly back for for like court and stuff like that. So that I don't think they they didn't pursue those other charges. But yeah, we extradited him back to Kansas, and that was the first homicide trial that I actually testified in as well. So there are a lot of firsts with this particular case, and then whatever. What my role on it was, was he had originally boarded a Greyhound bus that left a town in Maine. And we I basically had to track him all the way from Maine, taking Greyhounds to uh, Junction City, Kansas, where he had gotten off of the Greyhound bus to use the restroom cause he, he and then didn't board it. He missed it when the bus left, so he started walking along I-70, and a Kansas Highway Patrolman pulled a, pulled over and said, you know, you can't walk along the interstate, it's illegal, but I can take you to a highway, and you can walk the rest of the way on this highway. It'll connect you to Salina, at where another Greyhound terminal is, and so the trooper gets him in his patrol car and then drives him to an intersection at this highway and he's seen leaving and walking down and that that was important because we had like dash cam and obviously the troopers video of pulling him over and him being in kansas near the near the location of shashki's house and then cell phone called the detail records put him on towers around the house and then and then the i guess the rest is history so what is his connection to shashki nothing he had 
They, yeah, it, it's absolutely terrible. He had just broken in the house, and then Shoshki got home, and he just shot and killed him, and then stole his property and drove out. The craziest thing was, in when the truck was recovered in Los Angeles, and they had, they were processing it, a Coors Light can was found in the truck that had Colson, who is the suspect's DNA on it, and... During trial, we had a Coors Light representative come in to testify that the manufacturing time date and timestamp and stuff on that can matched. It would have been processed about the same time that the beer and Shoshki's fridge had been processed. So that's because there was no DNA of Colson inside the residence. The only thing that we had that he had went inside the residence was that beer can. Mm. And then the gun, the gun that was found, that was the murder weapon. That was Shoshki's. Oh, okay. And where was that found? Uh, in the truck as well with, uh, I believe it had Colson's DNA on that. So there there was like a lot of stuff that, the res- that we found in the truck that was recovered. But I mean... I remember the assistant attorney general, I called her after I had testified because I was very, very nervous afterwards. Like, did I do everything? Did I answer all the questions right? Yada, yada, yada. And she called me. She's like, Pam, the jury gasped when we brought up the Coors Light can. I, I'm pretty sure it's okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, yeah, he was convicted of, of those charges and he was cons- he was sentenced to life in prison and he won't be eligible for parole for 25 years. And then I guess back to you testifying, did you get much pushback from the defense cross-examine wise? Yes. So I, another analyst did the call detail records because there's so much to be done on this case. And I, I focused on, like I said, the, the travel itinerary of the Greyhound and then the financial, the credit cards that were used and then some of the CCT cameras. So the defense wanted to know, like he was asking questions about the Greyhound stuff because Greyhound basically will say, yes, a ticket was purchased with this credit card, but they don't know who boards. Once it's purchased, like they don't really keep track of whoever's boarding it after that. And then he was asking about who actually used the credit cards could i testify that so-and-so was using the credit cards and stuff like that and i remember saying something like granted this has been i don't know six seven years ago but the i got re-examined by the assistant attorney general because she's like you shouldn't like just just don't elaborate just stick to like yes no (laughs) i don't know and i was like okay all right i will do that Because the other thing was, is that what I realized very shortly is some of the questions that even she asked me on the stand, like I didn't, we didn't even talk. She just said, did you make this map? And I was like, yes. And she's like, great, you're testifying this day. And I was like, super. And then when I get up there, I'm thinking it's going to be short and sweet. And I think I was on the stand for like two hours. I'm like, I, oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, I didn't, I, I was very, very nervous. And then I had to use all of my notes because there were some things on the map that she was like manually writing down. I told her afterwards, I was like, I could have add those. Like I could add labels. I just didn't know that that was what you were going to ask me when you're on the stand. So <laughs> there was a lot of learning that went. It was the first time that she had ever had an analyst testify. So I like to said there was, there was growth. Yeah. And I, you're one of the few people that I've interviewed for this show that there was actually some pushback. Because normally when I've talked to people, number one, analysts don't 
testify all that often. And number two, when they do, it's usually just about the facts of like toll records or or the data. And, and there's usually not much pushback from the defense. So the fact that you were up there two hours is is rare. Well, I, I, well, I testified in a homicide trial earlier this year down here in Denton, and it was about call detail records. And basically my testimony was to kind of be the alibi of somebody that the defense was pinning it on, right? And I was up there for like an hour, and then the judge was like, well, let's dismiss for lunch. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> so I'm like, you can tell, like, the defense attorney, like, I was like, he's going to do all this research, and sure enough, we come back from lunch, and he's like, he's trying to read notes that you can tell he got from Google. I was like, that's not that's not what that means. And then I was like, oh, goodness. Like, if he doesn't understand the call detail records, like, does the jury? But that all went well, too. So it's I've so gotten pushed back all times I've testified. Uh, was that the judge that was asking a bunch of questions, or that no. was the defense attorney? That was the defense attorney. Oh, um, uh, okay. Yeah. All right. So back to your bad story. So why was this guy going from Maine to California? He had a friend out in California and he was looking for, yeah, he just was looking for a new opportunity, I guess. And he so, just made that trans America trip. Did you ever hear why he took the dog? No. I, his mom, I think when she testified, she said that he like was an animal lover. I, but no, there was nothing that made sense about this. And then also when they brought that dog back, I remember telling them, I was like, what happens when that dog dies? Like they're going to like mourn the loss of like everything all over. I was like, this is, this is terrible. And like I said, I was, I was not, I didn't have dogs at the time, but now maybe I understand. Oh, now that is a bizarre, bizarre story. Yes. So, and the agent and I, we actually presented this as a uh, case debrief at the Kansas Intelligence Association. This was because what they tried to do in, in those conferences was to bring in how the analyst does a supportive role for whatever it, it was. And this was one that really relied hard on the intelligence analyst to assist with the agents in this case, because we had to put a lot of data together to build this picture of what happened. Hmm. Good. All right. Well, let's move on to Denton then. How do you get from Kansas to Denton? Oh, I know, right? I, I guess I wanted a new opportunity. And honestly, the pay down here was quite a bit better in the DFW area than what I was making at the state level. And I remember on my interview board, the deputy chief at the time, when I was talking about like all of my experience and what I'd been working on the past yeah, at the at the bureau that he goes, you're going to come down here and you're going to be bored. And because didn't <laughs> only at time had like two homicides a year. And I, I feel like I came here and then that just exploded. Like we've had more than two every year since I've been here, but I have I have not been bored. And it, it has been sometimes you find the place that you need to be. And that's been the place with Denton. Like I, I love this agency so much and the people that work here. And I don't think I would have appreciated them as much had not coming from where I did at the Bureau. So it's been a wonderful fast four years. I gotcha. So is it a similar role in that you're supporting investigations? So initially I was hired to be a patrol analyst to assist with like tactical analysis with patrol. And as I don't know, I, within 
five months of me being here, there was a homicide that happened and they were working on some stuff, trying to identify it. I was like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, do you, what, what could you do to help? And I was like, well, let me, let me call my friends at the bureau. Like, I, I was like, I know that there are tools out there to, that can assist with that. They had never had anybody here that was able to assist them. The detectives were just doing everything on their own. So initially, no, I was not hired to be an investigative support analyst, but it's kind of blended into that because of my training and experience from my past job. Yeah. And I guess where is Denton in relation to Texas overall? Yeah. So Denton is about, I don't know, 40 miles north of Dallas. It's okay. literally where I-35 splits. One goes to Fort Worth and I-35 goes down to Dallas. And we're we're at that like kind of wishbone along I-35. I think it's interesting you go from the, the state level to the local level. Just talk a little bit about that. You might expect there to be a lot of similarities, but there might be some big differences between working at the state level and then working at the local department. Yeah. What was a big adjustment for me when I transitioned down to this crime analyst was I, we weren't really first response, like we weren't first on scene or first to respond to a call. Most of the cases that I worked at the bureau, we were, it was a outside agency request. Hey, we had a quadruple homicide. Can you come help us? And, and then we would go report. Working with patrol officers was a whole new ballgame for me. And I really had to, I had to go along on ride-alongs or I, I mainly would just go to patrol briefings and then try to figure out like, how do you do your job? And then how I can support that. Like I wasn't used to like a city with districts and beats. We had the, I was used to working in a whole state and we kind of just floated wherever we were needed. So that, that was a huge transition. I do often wonder why the state doesn't get more involved. And I, I, I say that out loud and realize why, but it, it does seem like the, the state is there to fill in the gaps where the city or county is not, basically, right? And it does make me wonder, like, why the state doesn't offer more tools to the cities and counties. Like, for instance, if if there was a statewide licenses for some of these vendor tools and I, th to give to give everybody in the state access to that, as opposed to each city or county purchasing them separately. And it actually brings up a good point. So because why because I worked at the state level, I knew I, I was aware about a lot of fusion centers. So we had one fusion center up there. Well, I should say two. We had the Kansas State Fusion Center and then Kansas City metropolitan area has their own kind of fusion center. But coming down to the Dallas Fort Worth area, there are, you know, Fort Worth Fusion Center, Dallas Dallas area's got one. We have the North Texas Fusion Center. We've got fusion centers all over the place. And I was like, <laughs> it was, when stuff would come in and officers would ask me for stuff, I'm like, I'm kicking this to the fusion center because they they need those requests and they have the funding, to, federal funding to support that. And the other thing with regards to like the state helping with vendor tools, I think a lot of that is awareness. So the North Texas Anti-Gang Center, the we call it the TAG, we're a partner agency now with them, so we were able to get access to Clearview AI through TAG. So now we can do this facial recognition software stuff because that state agency is paying for it, and we're a partner agency to that, so we have access. 
Oh, all right. So I yeah. think that would be something. I'm always encouraging analysts to identify new sources of information, even if it's something that you don't have direct access to. Just know that it's there so when you need it, you know where to get it type thing. And there seems to, I bet you there's a good presentation in there of state resources there for local analysts. Yeah, absolutely. The Even Texas Department of Public Safety, like if we have a request for certain things, we push it there and they, they're very responsive. So I think some of it is just having those contacts and not being afraid to reach out and see what they say. Hi, this is Carolyn Cassidy, and I'd like to give some information to you. We've all watched shows on TV where someone comes home and there's been a break-in. Their house is disrupted and possibly items have been stolen. Someone gets on the phone and calls 911. Help, please come. I've been robbed. Okay, let's clarify this. You have not been robbed. You have been burgled. A robbery is a person-to-person crime. A burglary is a property crime. If you are not home, when someone comes in and takes something, from you. You have been burgled. There has not been a robbery. Hashtag you were burgled, not robbed. LEA Podcast recently just had their third year anniversary and in thinking about that I realized that I haven't done enough to thank those that have helped me over the years. Kyle McMullen, who's a longtime friend, has designed most of the logos for the podcast. And his website, moderntype.com, sells planners, business forms, signs, and calendars. All profits from the website go to UPMC Children's Hospital Foundation in Pittsburgh. So if you could shop on his site and help him out, that would be greatly appreciated. And then the song that's playing now, the rough and tumble, Mallory and Scott, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, the music and sound bites for the podcast they created. They have a new album, Only This Far. They are touring between Michigan and Colorado this summer. Find their album and their tour dates at theroughandtumble.com. This is Steve Gottlieb saying, never let failure get to your heart and never let success go to your head. Always stay humble because humility wears well. Let's have a general talk about analysts working on investigations. And so you've gotten into working some pretty big cases now, which some advice that you might have for our listeners as folks are supporting investigations. Yeah, I I have really learned that over time. It's I'm I'm helping with the case. Like it's it's that detective or that special agent's or senior special agent's case, but how can I help? We're all this part of this team and we're working this wheel together to get the maximum time that we can on whatever offender. So I initially especially down here in Denton's probably a better example since it wasn't initially why I was hired here, but working with the detectives and getting that rapport with them so that they trust the work that I'm doing for that case has helped. And I also am very clear with them about where my skills are. If they start asking me to do like other things, I'm like, that's not, this is my lane (laughs) because (laughs) 
I don't want to get in a situation where I'm up there testifying to something that when they're like, where, what is your training and experience on that? And I'd be like, well, I Googled it. And that's, well, that's where I got my training. Like, I don't want to do that. So as I've gotten requests to do certain things with investigative support, and I've not done that before, I typically will say, that's an articulable reason why I need to go to that training. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're going to go, you have the history of consistently being called in to testify. That is definitely something that to keep in mind that it's, yes, I could learn real quick and, and get some information for you. But in terms of being a subject matter expert on, on this, you, you can't Google your way there. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's, it's important. I, we actually had this conversation with an analyst up in Maryland last week. We were talking about with call detail records, like we need, we wanted more training and getting training in addition to like outside of just a vendor training, because you need to know more than what that so how that software analyzes the data. You really need to be able to articulate what you know about these records when they come back. Yeah, and that's always my worry too. You know, some of these tools that analysts use, you know, you're just clicking a couple of buttons and it's producing something. And to really have an understanding of the calculations that go on behind the curtain, I'm not, I'm not sure that's really being taught. That's something that somebody, an analyst, is going to have to prepare for themselves if they, if they are testifying about the product that they produce using a certain tool, they can get a little dicey because really you analysts are taught how to use the tool, but may, may not be taught the calculation that goes on in the background. Yeah, that's a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. And I think too, with supporting investigations, I mean, that's, that's where networking becomes such a plus, right? You were talking when you first got in there like, oh, well, I know this can be done. Let me call some people that I know that can do this or have done this before. And that's really what you, what you want to do is expand your knowledge of resources. So again, you never know when a particular resource may become useful in an investigation, but you want to know that, that you who to contact when the need arises. Yeah, and not only does that go for like investigative support, but it transcends everything that you do. Like I can I can Google it to get kind of a, a little bit of an understanding, but who's my subject matter expert, whether it be in domestic terrorism, a specific game click, or who, who can I call in my Rolodex of contacts? Hmm. How about some advice for people looking to get into the profession? I, I mean... My trademark, again, was I got into an agency that I I really could see, like, long-term potential with. Like, I, I wanted to stay where I was at and I kind of, like, promoted up was my experience. The other, the other thing I would caution people is, like, I, I worked with a lot of people at, at the state level or a local level that necessarily didn't have a master's degree or didn't have the typical criminal justice degree. I mean, some of the analysts that worked at the Bureau, one was a journalism major, another majored in something else completely different. So take take the tools and the skills of what you know how to do and sell that, like make it make it marketable, make, make point your skills and say like, this is why what I know how to do with this will be useful to your agency. And I, I think that that is, speaks volumes.
Yeah, and I, I think there's certain basic skills that I think folks can always hone in on. That writing, presenting, problem solving, reasoning, those are the, some of the basics that analysts get taught in some of his training. And so, and it's, it's, it's interesting. It's always interesting to me that it almost feels like it's better to have a degree in something other than criminal justice <laughs> for our field. Like it, you mentioned journalism or you, I've, you know, people with business backgrounds, people with computer science backgrounds, it, it does. Accounting is another good one. It just seems like it, criminal justice by itself is is not the best course to get you to be in the criminal justice field. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Well, well, speaking of master's degree, as I mentioned in your intro, you have a master's degree that you just received in digital forensic science. So why did you decide to get that degree, first off? Well, well I... And I, I maybe I should have stopped you. Like I, so I was working on a digital forensic science degree through Champlain. So I don't actually have a full master's yet. Okay. So I, I apologize for that. But why I took the classes to for di digital forensic science was because I was working on investigative case support with child sexual assault material. And again, I had asked to go to some training and it was not in the budget. Like with local agencies, I guess that I've noticed more than state agencies, it's like the budget is real. And with civilian staff, <laughs> like it's, it's very difficult to get to training that I'm, I was used to the bureau. We were spoiled. Like if I wanted to go to Ialea, I could go to, I went to Ialea every single year. I went to Iomega, which is the International Outlaw Motorcycle Gang Investigators Association. I went to that conference like every year I was an analyst. I I was used to that. And so when I would put in for these trainings, they're like, yeah, no. I was like, what do you mean? No. <laughs> like, like I, it was a fall hard. So as I was working on this investigative case report, I'm like, I need to know what I'm talking about when it comes to hash values and, and SQL databases. So I... I'd gotten into that program to help build my or establish my credentials to go testify for those cases. Good, good, good. And then I guess it's I guess also speaking of training, is there a particular training that you highly recommend? I, I mean, obviously you can get into like very specific. If you're working a specific case, you want to get trained in that specific the specific tool or education. But is like I, I guess in general, is there a is there one particular training that you would highly recommend? If if you love open source stuff, Michael Basil and some open source. He also has a website. He's taught a lot at LEIU. Mm -hmm. That's great training. And then the home, I think it's Department of Homeland Security. They offer a, a critical thinking and analytical methods course. And I, I believe it's called by kind of a different name right now. But that that is like a foundational course for anal analysts that I took back in, I don't know, 2013. And I, I still use those core foundations today. So that was something I found really helpful. All right. And then let, I, I, one question I'm liking uh, to ask these days is what I call an unpopular opinion. And that's just maybe your take on a law enforcement analysis concept that's against the grain. Do you have something that's maybe considered an unpopular opinion? 
I, I do think it's an unpopular opinion around some. So I, I'm very particular about, I've learned more from analysts who maybe didn't have degrees or didn't have degrees, like you say, and branching into other fields other than criminal justice. And I was at a training in St. Louis a while back and the gentleman that was teaching the course asked me, I was with my two supervisors, like my chain of command. And he's like, so what's your master's degree in? And I said, I don't have a master's degree. And he goes, good luck with your career. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then he proceeded to go on about how at his agency, he requires anybody going into that unit to have a master's. And I was like, I mean, that might work for you, but I, I have not found that to be the case at all again. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it is interesting from time to time that I'll, I'll hear about education requirements. And, you know, even if you get into some of these associations worth the certification, you're looking to get certified and to have a degree gets you so many points. Of course, you have to earn so many points to even qualify for certification. There will be some people here, I don't have a degree, but I've been in this analyst role for 20 plus years. And that certainly should qualify them uh, to be, at least be able to take the test to get certified, I would think. But that's that comes up from time to time. And another thought, uh, so we just had somebody on there that they didn't get a supervisor role because they didn't have a master's degree. And so it does seem a little odd to me that they would require a certain degree to be promoted, especially to me, if you can prove that you have the skills to do the job, then certainly you can use a degree, an advanced degree to, to show that you do have that role. But Certainly, you're going to be excluding maybe some really good candidates because of that restriction. I agree with you 100%. And especially talking to local, like the officers here in patrol briefings and stuff, they're not walking around with a bunch of diplomas from all of these. So you have to be able to relate to them. And if you, if you go into a patrol briefing and then talk above them the whole time they're there, they're never going to listen to you. So I don't know. I it's just one of my soapbox things. And apparently maybe I should work on forgiveness because he's that happened to me a while ago and I've like never forgotten it. It just, it's, it really stuck in my craw. I was like, what in the world? <laughs> Who would say that? Well, especially to say that to you, not knowing you in that situation in front of everybody, especially in front of your direct reports, it's just against any kind of training tact that I've ever heard of no one would recommend that you do that in yeah, a training yeah. sen scenario and say good you know be snarky and say good luck with your career kind of thing i might say that to you just jokingly if we knew each other real well but even then i and to do it in an open forum is it's not necessarily the the best course of action i don't think so but anyway all right well let's move on to call-in segment then favorite first jobs so those who might not be aware where I got this idea was when I interviewed Steve Gottlieb, who told me that when he was first starting out, he hosted a radio show on Sunday mornings at 16 years old. So I, I find it fascinating to ask and find out what people's first jobs were and get different 
perspectives from there. So first on the line is Nick. Nick, what's one of your favorite first jobs? My favorite first job was selling cars because nothing will make you feel worse about yourself than talking to people in that manner every single day. And nothing will make you want to be better than being a car salesman. It was awful, man. I tell you what, I learned real quick. I did not want to do that as a full-time job for the rest of my life. It's just awful. Was it new or used? Honda. And you know what? I really liked the product, but like the whole, people don't understand that whole world of cars, car sales is just awful. You're working 60 hour weeks. You're begging and pleading with people to buy cars or you don't get paid. Owners are awful. General managers are awful. Like the whole industry is just awful. I find that funny because this is like a stereotype of like the sleazy used car salesman, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I I don't know. Some people really like the whole car shopping experience. I'm not one of those people, but I that's I think I would be right there with Nick. I'm not sure I would really enjoy this whole thing of trying to sell somebody a car. I I think he nailed that. Yes, a hundred percent. Going back to actually putting a positive spin on a bad situation, sometimes it's good to find out what you don't want to do. If, you, if you're trying to <laughs> explore this world, it's it becomes easier to say, okay, I tried that and I know I don't want to do that. So I know to steer clear of anything that's like that. So that can still be helpful, even though it turned out what he didn't really want to do. All right, next on the line is Kelly. Kelly, what's one of your favorite first jobs? My first job was at a ice cream shop. I spent the whole first week of my job scraping the freezer, picking up all the ice cream and droppings from the ice cream cones that they had. But then shortly later, I lost that job because we were shut down by the health department. I guess I didn't clean that freezer good enough. (laughs) (laughs) It seems to me that you really have to be filthy in order to get shut down by the health department (laughs) Uh, yeah i I, that made my stomach like a little bit queasy (laughs) right i mean it's serving ice cream and i i've served ice cream before i used to work at amusement parks and sometimes you get transferred to different stations depending on what the need is and so i had to make ice cream a little bit for it and it wasn't but it was soft serve Big difference between soft serve and scooping it yourself, obviously. But that's also kind of crummy. You get a job thinking you're going to be dealing with the public, selling ice cream, and then you end up just being like scraping the floor for a week. <laughs> that just sounds awful, though. I guess that's how they they break you in. All right. Next on the line is Tammy. Tammy, which one of your favorite first jobs? My favorite first job was as a volunteer candy striper at a hospital during my senior year of high school. In fact, it was the hospital I'd been born at some 17 years earlier. I liked getting to know the retired ladies that volunteered there, and I enjoyed helping visitors and patients. And I'd like to think that being attentive and helpful are skills I've honed as a crime analyst. See, that's really cool, too. Being that young and uh, getting to volunteer in the hospital because they're, I mean, for as many crazy stories that you and I can probably come up with dealing with our decades at a police department, the hospital is another one that there is always craziness going on there. Yes, you're right. All right. Next on the line is Amy. Amy, what's one of your favorite first jobs? Oh, I'm going to have to say it's working at Pomona Police Department, Jason. 
I loved having my having that experience there working with Annette Fajardo, who's now the supervising crime analyst with LASD, all the fun times, the jokes, the laughs, meeting Albert Mesa there, who was putting out flyers on baby Jesus figurines stolen from the nativity scenes in Glendale. While we over here in Pomona, we're trying to locate some homicide suspects. Great times, great times at Pomona. Yeah, it seems like maybe she was talking trash a little bit there. Like, hey, we're dealing with homicide serious situations and you're dealing with figurines. <laughs> Yeah, it's always like a thing with people who try to say like, oh, well, we're dealing with this here. It's like, oh, well, we have bigger fish to fry. Yeah, yeah, then it, it is. So, well, you probably experienced that too, right? The reaction was, are you going, are you going to be bored working here? Because it's definitely this is small town Denton type thing. But I don't know. So. Yeah, and then. Uh, yeah, it was it was a surprise to all. But once an analyst comes into the field, like what they can find that they're like, we didn't even know that was a problem. I was like, yes, this is a problem. Yeah. So, but, all right. Very good. Last but certainly not least is Charles. Charles, what's one of your favorite first jobs? My favorite first job, I worked at a little rundown amusement park in the Panhandle of Florida. And the little roller coaster that I worked was made of wood, falling apart, and a total death trap. But it really built character. What's the name of the park? It was called Miracle Strip Amusement Park. It closed down probably like 2006, 2007. But they closed it down because people were going to die on that roller coaster. (laughs) Oh, man. What do you think of that one? I I love roller coasters. So I probably would have been like, this is my fate. Like... (laughs) She died doing what she loved. That's what somebody would say. Oh, man. It, well, to me, the wooden ones do get pretty rough. Like, I've I've felt, like, bruised and battered getting off of some of these wooden roller coasters. Yeah. Up in Kansas City, Worlds of Fun has a wooden roller coaster called the Timberwolf. And, I mean, it was like a badge of honor to ride it. And <laughs> my oldest apparently she told me this first she's like you remember when you talked me into going on that ride and i was like yeah it wasn't fun she's like no mom it shook me all over it was the it was the worst ride yeah my my son when he was eight years old we went to oh what we went to holiday world in santa claus indiana so that's southern tip of indiana and i i had he was eight and my daughter was five, but she was too small to ride the wooden roller coaster, the Raven. So he convinced me to let him go on there by himself. And he said he said that it threw him around so much that he thought his brain was rattling around in his head. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and he still talks about it to this day. So, hey, there, you know, while it is a death trap, it does create memories. It does. <laughs> All right, so that's favorite first jobs. If you have a favorite first job you want to share with us, contact us at leapodcasts at gmail.com. All right, Pam, let's finish up with personal interest then. And because for you, apparently you like swinging objects because you're into softball and golf. Yes, I I love both sports passionately. <laughs> I played softball for many, many years, played in college, and then as I kind of got older and, you know, with, I was also reckless when I was in college, I played softball. I'd be diving in the outfield for for balls or whatever. (laughs) I ran full force into an outfield fence one time trying to chase down a home run ball that I had no business chasing after because it had cleared the yard by a long ways, but 
when I started having kids, I decided maybe I should switch to golf because it was, I thought it would be safer for me. And, yeah. and I, and I love it, but I will say I was thinking today as I was driving into work, I'm like, in Texas, I have seen some things that I've never thought I would see. And on one of the golf courses, there was a sign by a pond that said like, beware of the snakes. And <laughs> I didn't care how many balls like I lost. I was never going to go near that. I think I picked up my ball actually and just went to the green. I was like, no, we're not playing this hole. Not if there are snakes here. Yeah. Well, same thing here in Florida with alligators. <laughs> like, I'm not going, I'm not going near that water. Right? It, can, it can it can be only like a you know 15 foot pond i'm not going near that water right yeah especially if there's a sign there it says beware of alligators so do you get out much now so yeah when i lived up in kansas now granted i was born and raised in kansas so mm -hmm. there was a group of girls like there i think there were around six to eight of us and every once a week we'd pick a day and we all would go hit the links for you know 18 holes like we'd go after work it was kind of that stuff where you know the guys do it or and so we would go and do it and i haven't mm. had that down here in texas i kind of missed that but mm. some of the the detectives and a couple of the patrol officers who would never play it i was like come try this they're like well we've only played top golf and i was like top golf is not golf i was like you need to go <laughs> like you need to go to a course and once they're out there they're like i love this this is fun i'm like yes it is smashing something is a complete, <laughs> complete awesome experience. Yeah. I mean, I've had an office job my whole career. I, I really like just getting outside and, and just doing something other than in the office. Right. That's, that was my big thing. I, I don't play much anymore, but when, before I had kids in my twenties, we played a lot and it was just nice. Like I'm in the office eight hours a day it was just nice to go out and walk out in the outside yeah i i agree with you and i also used it to my advantage because my former assistant chief so we report to the assistant chief down here in denton but he picked up golf and so when we would have these monthly like performance reviews we always ended up he'd be like oh pam like do this do that i was like cool and then we talk like 20 minutes about you know our last golf game or which courses we would recommend so that was it was yeah. fun. Do you have a handicap or what do you normally shoot? Probably. I, so handicaps are like around 100 because mm. I I can drive a ball off the tee. No problems. Mm. But you get me close to a green and I will four putt the heck out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I really like I tend to overswing off the tee because I just the softball player in me. But mm. I love playing. The, probably my best is my six iron. I love it. Yeah, so you do get favorite clubs, that's for sure. It's funny, I I played last year, and that was after taking a year off. Like I I guess so. That was that was I played in 2021, and I played as if I never played golf before in my entire life. I probably I I quit keeping score. It was so high that it was just I was done. And then Buddy took called me convinced me to go last year and I probably played one of the best rounds of my life. So I, but I haven't been out since. So I, I maybe it's the expectations. If I don't expect anything, I'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I mean, that's the thing about golf, too, is like you could have the best golf game of your life and you could play that course like four days later and be like, have I ever golfed? Like, yeah. yeah. Very good. All right. Well, this brings us to our last segment to the show is Words to the World. 
And this is where I give the guests the last word. Pam, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? So it's actually kind of funny. A couple months ago, our deputy chief sent out an email to our criminal investigations division and told the detectives that they were no longer allowed to cuss in the CID bay. And one of the detectives immediately upon receipt of that email marched into that guy's office and said, if I can't cuss, I can't solve cases. So <laughs> that would be my words to wise. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Pamela. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Thanks. The end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.